you off into their way of thinking, the way you're supposed to get your download. I try to dissect them and find out what they're really meaning, what they really mean. Because a lot of legalities are given to the public all the time. And we don't realize that our, our silence after reading something or even hearing a new deal, for instance, or a war on smoking or a war on obesity or a war on whatever, these are legal declarations which become law if we keep silent. That, that really is how common law is established. Everyone agrees by their silence and that it becomes law. And we talk more about this kind of law when I come back after these messages. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. Yesterday I mentioned the Chicago Climate Exchange, this private organization that Gore and Mr. Strong, uh, Rockefeller, Rothschilds, etc., all took part in setting up, because the Rothschilds, you see, their, their bank will be dealing eventually in Switzerland with all the trading of carbon taxes and so on. They deal with everything else. So why not that as well? But uh, it's astonishing to see how things are crept into the public's consciousness and then it becomes after a while accepted fact or, or, or just a routine like it's always been here therefore it's law and that's how it creeps into being mandatory everything starts voluntarily generally and then it becomes mandatory you know the, the driving licenses across most of the, the planet started off voluntary didn't have to have a driving license but then the goody two-shoes and the ones who thought they were getting up in the world would boast about taking the driving course and they were authorized now and they felt better than the ones who hadn't, you see. And the same thing happened with insurance for automobiles. You didn't need it at first. It was voluntary. Now, once they get something on the books and it's lawful, you see, and what they always use is democracy. Well, well, 75% have already gone this way. What's wrong with you? Or they'll say, well, just make it mandatory now that most have joined it. You see, that's how they use democracy when it suits them. This at the time is just dictatorial fascism, basically. But what they want in this world of interdependence is also a world where you personally will pay your personal carbon taxes. And it's going to be led off by all the greenies, of course, and all those who've fallen for all the nonsense, and they'll lead the charge to, to normalize it. As, and they'll boast about it. And then there'll be articles in all your local papers, etc., and photographs of the Green families and all this stuff until we're so sick of it. Uh, and then the government will just make it lawful. Well, 60% have gone this way, so we're just going to make it the same for everyone. You see, that's how it's getting introduced. And, and literally, it's the greatest magic act in the, in the planet, this invisible nonsense. How can you weigh, see, or anything invisible nonsense? You can't. They're already starting it, and have started it, in fact, in some air uh, ports in Canada, and no doubt in Britain too. And here's a letter, an email from someone who's sent me the Zero Footprint. This is the company, the private charitable organization, mind you, that seems to have been given a contract for this. So it'll be a to some foundation of Strong's or Rockefeller's, no doubt whatsoever. But 
He says, saw this as I was booking a ticket with Air Canada. We can voluntarily, for the moment, pay to offset our carbon footprint. That's your personal one. That says, mandatory soon, I imagine. They don't miss a beat. For only $25.60 plus general sales tax. So you've got a sales tax on top of your voluntary giveaway tax, twenty-five sixty. I can offset my carbon footprint, 1.6 tons of it, on a flight to Germany. And he sent me a link, too, to the Zero Footprint. As it says, it's a private organization, not-for-profit organization. This sprung out of nowhere, <laughs> like they all do, eh? You can always trace them back to the same foundations. This is a non-profit organization that's emerged as the industry standard for offsets. It's just emerged as the industry standard for offsets. Just like that. It's just it's a click of the fingers, and there it was. Our mandate is not only to help individuals and businesses become carbon neutral. You, you know, you have to be dead not to give off carbon. You breathe it out, carbon dioxide. You should be dead. <laughs> but to develop the technology and communities that will help the world rise to the challenge of climate change, they've dropped global warming because, they, because it's gone the other way, you see. Now, climate change just means changes in the weather. We used to always have the weatherman on television because the weather was always changing, for those who can remember that. So Air Canada and Zero Footprint have joined efforts to give you the opportunity to minimize the impact of your travel. Every flight you take releases carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and contributes to climate change. I wonder if they're going to tax all these jets that have been spraying us for 10 years and causing it to rain or to give us drought. Depends how they feel, what mix they use. That won't be mentioned because we're living in bogus land. But we truly are. We're in, we're in the biggest Disneyland ever, ever created. Here's an article here from Forbes magazine, November the 24th, 2008. Here's how they're getting it across to the sort of middle class yuppies. And remember that article I read before too. Studies at universities showed that the yuppies, the middle classes, and the professional classes are the first to parrot political correctness, no matter what it is, because they want to be the same as their peer group. They don't want, they don't want to be the odd man out. In other words, they have less individuality, so they always jump at what's politically correct at the time. So November 24th, it says, the Chicago Climate Exchange, that's that private one again, with Rothschild, Rockefeller, Maurice Strong, Al Gore, putting it through, funneling it through first Al Gore's own company, and then off to the Rothschilds. The Chicago Climate Exchange is an unusual free market experiment in which companies that want to demonstrate a true commitment to reducing their greenhouse emissions pledge to lower them by 1% a year. If they surpass that goal, they end up with permits they can sell to others. If they fail, they're penalized by having to buy permits. Now, you've got to understand what they're saying here. Right? If you pass the goal you put down as a pledge, you end up with permits that you can sell to others. If you fail, you're penalized by having to buy permits. What is unusual is that no one forces anyone to join the exchange. That's at the moment. Because the big boys at the top, I've read the articles, are making a fortune off it. Because at the bottom, the taxpayers fund it all. Participation is voluntary, but once a business has signed up, it is contractually obligated. Now, right? That's from that voluntary part. Participation is voluntary, but once a business has signed up, it is contractually obligated to buy or sell permits based on its performance. 
A company that beats the 1% gold gets both publicity and a financial reward, and the specter of the potential penalty helps it reach that goal. So punishing yourself if you can't make the goal is going to punish you financially. Now here it goes, right? Here it goes. And I'm sure this, this article is, is getting put through all the yuppie magazines at the same time and all the business magazines. Why not offer the same opportunity to individuals? That's you and me, right? You could contract to reduce your home energy consumption by 1% a year for each of the next 10 years. Now, you have no idea how the cost of living is going to go up in the next few years. When you beat that target, you'd get to sell permits. When you miss, you'd pay a penalty by buying unused permits from others. Now, remember, you've contracted legally with them, so you'll have to do it if you sign on. As a result, your increment, incremental price of fuel would go up. So if you failed, if you burned more BTUs, you'll also have to also not only pay for that fuel. No wonder you're, you're probably freezing. That's why you're using more. Uh, but also, you, you'll have to put or buy more permits, you see, for, for a penalty. This incremental price shift is like a self-imposed tax on energy consumption. It creates an incentive to conserve. But it's different from an ordinary tax in that you may not have to pay anything. If you hit your target, you won't owe a, owe a dime. It's a casino, you see. It's not a casino idea. This is, this is for gamblers to be addicted to. Thus, the scheme gives you an incentive without hitting you over the head. Creating such a market might seem difficult, and the transaction costs could outweigh the benefits. Therefore, we propose that utility companies set it up. Well, that's wonderful that the utility companies will set it up for you and do all the trading for you. When you sign up, the utility company will give you permits equal to 99% of your previous year's consumption. Now, you know the price is going to go up every year. It always does, sometimes twice a year for your fuel, right? To the extent that you beat that 99% target, you'll get credit for the value of your extra permits with a minimum price of $0.05 cents per kilowatt hour. That $0.05 cents is our estimate of how much utilities are already spending per kilowatt saved, on programs to help consumers conserve energy, and it's enough to provide a big incentive. This is like gambling talk. You ever, you ever gone to the people who are really into gambling and the horses and so on? You hear these terms and percentages and so on for their bets. This is about 75% of the average price for electricity in the U.S., not including transmission and distribution costs. When you miss the target, the utility will buy the extra permits and bill you up up to a maximum price of 10 cents per kilowatt hour. Utilities should be allowed to buy renewable energy credits from one another too if it makes for a cheaper way of obtaining them. How is it going to get cheaper? Everything's going up. Oh, we've got that. That's the law of the financial history. Everything goes up all the time. So here they are trying to confuse the people and at the same time promising them they can, they can win something at the same time if they meet their targets. Maybe they could all bundle up in sweaters and your face might be a bit blue, but you might survive the winter. You'd be a very good, good person. You might get a little gold star from the IPPC at the United Nations. Who knows? Or you might just die and freeze to death. But that's the rubbish that's getting peddled out there as they create this massive new economy. It's a must-be. It was all done before we even heard of it, all this stuff. Even the carbon trading, etc., I'm sure Gore was told about this 30 years ago when he was picked and his future was read to him. They said, you're going to be this, 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 and this, and this by the year so-and-so. And you're bringing carbon trading 
He probably says, what's that? Then if he's given a, a lesson on basic physics and what carbon is. Everything that happens is set up years and years in advance, including who they're going to give you as, as politicians. Years in advance. The roles are all worked out for them long, long ago. Long ago. We're on one big agenda, you see. It's no coincidence the Club of Rome published that very thing in, the, in, in their book. And they said in their book that it was the 1970s they hit upon the idea of global warming to be used as the big stick on the public. That's a long time ago, and they were working on it all then and giving the boys their future roles. Back with more after these messages. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and we're cutting through the matrix. There's been a big council, ongoing council on the go for some time. It's called Comparative Effectiveness Research. And it was set up by the present government to find ways to cost cut across the public sector. Now for all those who are rah-rahing for the coming socialized medicine, that's where you walk into factory clinics, hope to see a doctor, and if the doctor is called away to a hospital, you all come back the next day. Uh, that kind of stuff. They kind of have in Britain and elsewhere, and Canada as well, in some parts like where I live. And, but they're trying to find ways of cutting costs, you see. That's really what it's about. So comparative effectiveness is what they're after. Something that's not quite the same, but it's effective to some extent or other in some vague way. And it says here, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of 2009 created the Federal Coordinating Council for Comparative Effectiveness Research. They love these long terms. To coordinate comparative effectiveness, comparative effectiveness across the federal government, the council will specifically make recommendations for the $400 million allocated to the office of the Secretary for CER, they call them the Comparative Effective Research, CER. And it's only costing them $400 million to do all this research. And I'm sure all the, the things that they're going to bring in were decided before they had the council. But a lot of it's to do, as I say, with health care. Now, you remember I read an article uh, two or three weeks ago where Obama, in a major speech, was talking about, or an interview with a, with a newspaper, um, he talked about uh, the elderly and what a burden and cost they are on the health care and society. And he brought into his own grandmother, I believe, uh, the, the, how much it cost to keep her going at, near the end. And he's made comments like, uh, what's the point of giving someone an artificial hip if they haven't long to live, and stuff like that. And after that, we found out that Washington State just got a, the go-ahead to commit the first uh, eugenics act or... or, or um, Euthanasia Act, I should say, on someone who is elderly. Now, the state wants this power to kill. Personally, I don't care what people do. All done through history, relatives have attended people who have been terminally ill and in awful pain. Everyone knows this. Everyone knows this. Doctors all know it. But, but you see, what it's, it really is about is giving government the rights to decide who lives and dies. 
that different because remember they have political policies to follow agendas to follow techniques we call them technique they're they're addicted to technique and they also want the right to decide who gets born and who doesn't get born remember that too now I'll put this the link up to this particular comparative effective research funding and you can go into yourself as a PDF you can get on it as well but I'm also going to put up a, a video link and I think it was, it, was, it was off this actual meeting to do with healthcare and Mr. Obama's favorite right-hand man on the issue was in the panel and when he's challenged because he has written before according to uh, this reporter who challenged him uh, policies advocating euthanasia he gets up and has to leave suddenly you'll see that happening and I think it was a man from the Executive Intelligence Review that asked the right questions he knew his stuff and you'll see this, you'll see this right-hand man who's been in charge of your health care get up and suddenly have to go. And it's on YouTube. I'll put that link up for you to see. Also, there's a link here for YouTube to do, I think it was one of the early morning American shows, but it's U.S. to get three flu shots, and they want to do it by law. And you hear them discussing it. You also hear discussed how they'll introduce it with a massive bombardment of media, which that this YouTube video from the mainstream is part of, obviously. That's what that's out there for. And why do they want three flu shots? Well, they want you to take the, the normal flu shot to begin with, the common one, the, the ones that never work. They always have the wrong mixes. They tell us that every, every spring. They've never got it right yet. But they want to give you the common type, plus the swine flu one. Now, followed by a booster. Now let's go back into when Baxter Laboratories uh, sent out those mixes for inoculation. They literally were, were checked, I think in Hungary or somewhere, where, where they caught them, or Czechoslovakia, and tested them on ferrets, and they killed all the ferrets. And they found out they had the common flu mixed with the avian flu. The very thing they have told us they hope never happens in nature. They did. Well, here's the theory of that, you see. Here's the theory of it. As viruses spread from person to person, especially flu, uh, the virus is called the great robber. It, it takes DNA, little bits of DNA from a victim, to the next victim and introduces that previous victim's DNA to the new victim. So it's always always changing its composition now in laboratories they use animals for instance for what they call hosts or breeders fast reactors they even joke about it fast reactors it's in the body of, of the animal and they breed up the viruses you see a live, a live being will breed it up and I'm going to explain why Giving a common flu virus and this new one together in the same host might be the very killer. They'll create the killer that they're after. Back with more after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
through the matrix talking about viruses and how they mutate and rob a little bit of DNA from each victim and constantly are changing as they go to the next victim and drop that DNA in the victim and leave it behind sometimes. And the whole theory of uh, contagion, of course, in virology is based upon the constant mutations of viruses because they are always taking bits of DNA from hosts. That's why they tell you some of the major uh, diseases out there can't be handled because they're, they're rap- rapidly going into different directions, different strains, thousands of strains, etc., etc., etc. But remember, a couple of months ago, I talked about the CDC and read the articles where they'd created a killer virus. They'd actually reconstructed uh, the Spanish flu, basically, by using uh, the common flu of today, taking three particular genes, adding it to it, and creating the killer, just to see what would happen in nature, they told us, right? Now, in nature, is this robber, this virus, comes, was, sweeps across the population, supposedly. The odds are that eventually it'll get three, at least three particular virus uh, 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 genes in sequence from different victims to make it the killer. It's what they're supposed to be afraid of. Now, the last thing you would want is to attach that to the more prevalent common flu. Because now you've got a real killer in your hands because it's far more contagious as opposed to the swine flu. People are even wondering if it really does exist. We find out, and I've read the articles too, that even countries like Scotland were diagnosing them just at facial value. A, a runny nose, oh, okay, swine flu. They weren't taking tests or swap tests or anything. Other countries have been doing the same. We know it's been hyped up out of all proportion, and we also know that the few deaths that have been are generally in children or infants that are born three months premature with other complications or other people with massive complications, which is standard in any flu. But they really, really want to give us these injections. As I say, the last thing you would, you would do, according to their own theories, if they're telling us the real... I wonder if they know the real theories, because they keep changing them. But if they're going by their own present theories, you would not want to use a host, that's you, and, and put in the common flu, or a common flu, and then give you another injection with this, this swine flu, supposedly. Because out of that, that you're, now the, you're now the breeder. You breed millions of viruses and possibly that combination the deadly one will suddenly appear so I don't understand this logic at all it is not logic in fact it's an agenda and I'm very very suspicious of these agendas very suspicious indeed especially when I've been going over the World Health Organization and its other department the World Population Council They want to reduce the population. That's their mandate. Look at their own site and see for yourself. Why would the big bad wolf want to help you? We give it in children's fairy stories because children understand the punchline. Know that the big bad wolf will never help you. It's the adults that forget it through their propaganda. Amazing, isn't it? And here's an article here on the big, big food bank. You see... The big food bank that they set up off Norway has, is storing all, supposedly all the world's 
It's only one by the way, there's other ones as well. But the storing the world's grain, the natural grain, for the future, you understand. For the, after all the big battles and the population reduction and the starvation, uh, the descendants of the wealthy elite, those who are chosen, those who have evolved more than the rest of us, will have all this stuff to themselves, to feed themselves. And they're having tours of the wealthy elite at the moment to the food, this particular bank. And this one is from Ice News. And it says, a diverse delegation of VIPs from the U.S. will travel to Norway's Arctic archipelago of Svalbard this week in an attempt to learn more about global warming and climate change. This is 20th of July, it's printed. The group of Americans comes at a high-profile nod from politics and business at a time when climate change is being taken increasingly seriously in the U.S. CNN founder Ted Turner, you know, that other guy that wants to drastically reduce the population, has publicly said so many times. Google founder Larry Page, billionaire philanthropist George Soros, <laughs> he's just a frontman for Rothschild, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, the one who liked to kill off all the Iraqis by starvation and said it was justified, and ex-U.S. President Jimmy Carter are just some of the well-known faces in the delegation. What they're getting shown, you see, is how their, their future offspring, all their descendants, will be fed from that when we're all dead. The focus of the trip, which was organized by the National Geographic Society, you know, the, 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 the ones that showed us all these wonderful photographs around the world and taught us to respect insects and mosquitoes and things that bite you, is to examine the revolutionary global seed bank that opened this February. The monumental facility houses seed samples from across the globe. And, of course, as Monsanto has been going in for years and years and years with modified stuff, the local peoples have been using less of their own or even disregarding it till it falls away so, so they can't go back to the old stuff. All the old stuff's been saved by these geezers in a place like, like this one. When it was opened, the seed bank on the remote island of Spitsbergen contained 260,000 different seed samples, each one from a separate farm to ensure diversity. The Svalbard Global Seed Bank is the first step in a novel attempt to preserve the Earth's biodiversity which is vanishing at an alarming rate. Crop diversity is essential for future food production and protect mankind's food from disease and pests, which could eradicate an entire species of crop. It goes on and on and on. For security reasons, the delegation from America will not be allowed to enter the actual rooms where the seeds are kept. Boy, they're taking no chances with this stuff, eh? No chances at all. Quite something. And it's no wonder we always hear one side of a story on the media and from all these big IPCC or IPPC experts and so on at the United Nations. Because they, they ban people from going to their meetings with any opposing opinion or evidence. And this is from the Telegraph, Tuesday the 30th of June 2009. It says, <clears throat> polar bear expert barred by global warmists. Michael Taylor, or Mitchell Taylor, who has studied the animals for 30 years, was told his views are extremely unhelpful, reveals Christopher Booker. Over the coming days, a curiously revealing event will be taking place in Copenhagen, top of the agenda at a meeting of the polar bear specialist group set under the, under the International Union for the Conservation of Nature Species Survival Commission, will be the need to produce a suitably scary report on how polar bears are being threatened with extinction by man-made global warming. This is one of a steady drizzle of events planned to stoke up alarm 
in the run-up to the UN's major conference on climate change in Copenhagen next December. Now, they, they did the same story last time. And it's true what they're saying. It, this is meant to stoke up alarm by giving us scary, scary scenarios. It says, but one of the world's leading experts on polar bears has been told to stay away from this week's meeting, specifically because his views on global warming do not accord with those of the rest of the group. There is democracy in action. They're really, they're really after the truth in democracy, aren't they? Dr. Michael or Mitchell Taylor has been researching the status and management of polar bears in Canada uh, uh, and around the Arctic, the Arctic Circle for 30 years as both an academic and a government employee. More than once since 2006 has been headlines by insisting that polar bear numbers, far from decreasing, are much higher than they were 30 years ago. Of the 90, so there you are, they're actually on the increase, and I've read reports the other day about the same thing. Of the 19 different bear populations, almost all are increasing or at optimum levels. Only two have, for local reasons, modestly declined. Dr. Taylor agrees that the Arctic has been warming over the last 30 years, but he ascribes this not to rising levels of CO2, as is dictated by the computer models of the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and believed by his PBSG colleagues, but to currents bringing warm water into the Arctic from the Pacific and the effects of winds blowing in from the Bering Sea. He's also observed, however, how the melting of Arctic ice supposedly threatening the survival of the bears has rocketed to the top of the warmest agenda as their most iconic single cause. The famous photograph of two bears standing forlornly on the melting iceberg was produced thousands of times by Al Gore, the World Wildlife Fund, and others as an emblem of how the bears faced extinction. Until last year, the photographer, Amanda Bird, revealed that the bears just off the Alaska coast were in no danger. Her picture had nothing to do with global warming and was only taken because the wind sculpted ice they were standing on made such a striking image. They, they actually swam back to the shore. <laughs> Oh, seeing is believing, eh? That picture is worth a thousand words. Dr. Taylor had obtained funding to attend this week's meeting of the PBSG, but this was voted down by its members because of his views on global warming. The chairman, Dr. Andy DeRocker, a former university pupil of Dr. Taylor's, frankly explained in an email that, that his rejection had nothing to do with his undoubted expertise in polar bears. It was the position you've taken on global warming that brought opposition. So only those who are cheerleaders for global warming are getting in. Now remember, too, all the articles are, articles are read where they've actually said that the ice was three foot thicker this year at the Arctic than in previous years. It's really actually growing. And when it doesn't grow on one side, it grows on the other. I mean, nothing's static up there. Never has been. Nothing's ever been static. But there you go. That's, there's how you take a, a photograph, you make people... People sorry, thinking, oh my God, those poor bears died. No, they didn't die. They swam back to shore. Did a good little dip, a good swim, had a good laugh, and went back to shore, you see. Like they, they always do. And you know how far bears can swim? They can sometimes go hundreds of miles, if they want to. Amazing, eh? An ignorant public are so easy to manipulate. And what was it, too, that, that, uh, that you find that Brzezinski said in his book, Between Two Ages, they create a public that would be highly emotive. Emotional talk was all you'd have to give them to get your way with them, to manipulate them. They have created that society. Dumb, stupid, and ready to cry tears at any, any drop of a penny. It's been done. 
called the Mail Online. The Mail Online, and the date is the 30th of June 2009. Gordon Brown, that's the Prime Minister that stepped in from Blair. Again, another Fabian, he's an actual Fabian member, was facing a cabinet revolt today as it emerged his latest round of spending on social housing will be paid out of the government department's budgets. And it was their cutting back. The Prime Minister yesterday unveiled an additional $1.5 billion to, to build 110,000 social homes, which will form the centrepiece of Labour's pre-election fight back. But the plan will not be funded with new money, we're told. But get scrolling down it, it actually says that they're afraid there could be riots coming because of the massive cutbacks. That's what really the story is really, really all about. Massive cutbacks if they can't get if they can't um, basically keep the people going feed the people and so on I mentioned too that uh, the world we have to go into is to be a vegetarian society it's been said so many times for the last 50 years and we find uh, many top writers and futurists being putting, putting this stuff in their books etc and Newt Gingrich was pushing it as well on behalf of Toffler in his book, The Third Way. He said it will be a vegetarian world, and it must be so. And here's the mail online. 29th of June, packs of red meat should carry warning labels advising shoppers to ration themselves to three portions a week amid controversial claims that livestock production is killing the planet. See, everything, everything, everything that keeps you alive, everything is going to be held and proxy by governments for you. In other words, it's not yours anymore. Nothing's going to be yours anymore. Anything you need to live, you'll have to beg or plead or bribe for it. You see? The proposals come from the World Wildlife Fund. Do you know that one that Prince Philip, the guy that says if he comes back in reincarnation, he wants to come back to the virus, it'll kill a lot of people. That's a fact. He did say that. He's the, he's the head of the World Wildlife Fund, which also wants Britons to switch to milk substitutes as part of a radical move away from dairy farming. However, the food industry, I wonder if that will also affect the royal herds of Angus that they have away up in Scotland for, for all the royalty. That's what, they actually fly the chef up to have a tour of the beef herds when they're having a party, and he picks out the ones to slaughter. I wonder if it will affect them. I, I, somehow I don't think so, Prince Philip. However, the food industry yesterday slammed the idea as dangerous, totally unrealistic, and likely to decimate British agriculture. The World Wildlife Fund argues that meat packs should carry a warning label reading one or three a week max, or bottles of milk or packs of cheese should state one or three a day max. I told you after 9-11, I said, you know, you're going to see a whole war scenario put down our throats, including rationing one day. You don't understand how they're doing it. They're literally introducing all, all those things you would see in a true ongoing war. And what was it they said at the Club of Rome? To unite the planet, to make people subservient to their governments and obey into this new order, they'd have to create a war scenario. That means ration cards. It means rationing food. It means people being um, moved from area to area under the guise, obviously, of, of um, coming plagues, etc., ID cards, all that stuff. They're using war scenarios, and this is part of it. So 
organization all also wants the composition of ready meals charged to, for example, or changed to reduce the amount of red meat in a cottage pie or dairy in a cauliflower cheese. Why don't we tell them to go and get stuffed? Because, you see, really, what are they? They're another non-governmental organization. We don't vote them in. So why do they have any say, and why do they have priority say in any politician's ear? Well, it's because it's the agenda, you see. It's the agenda. There are only one of a thousand points of light, as Mr. Bush Sr. called them, that are working through government, the Soviet-style, ruled by councils. The true democracy, according to them, is the councils. That's what the NGOs represent. But they're all funded by the foundations, you see. Foundations. Now, on the polity.org.za, it covers a meeting that was held with Gordon Brown and other prime ministers. It says here, this is June, the, this is the 10th of June, and this was uh, in 2008. British Prime Minister Gordon Brown at the close of the meeting said bodies such as the International Monetary Fund were no longer fit for the purpose of basically responding to the crisis of the planet. Now that was before the crash. And he's talking about a new Bretton Woods then. And a new body for the United Nations. We'll be back with more and higher stats for the IMF. Back with more after this break. I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix. And I'll put these links up on my site at the end of the show. You can look into them yourself. But this last one, before I go to the callers, this last one, as I say, is amazing. He's Mr. Brown calling for a new Bretton Woods, uh, calling for uh, either a, a different IMF or a much more bolstered-up IMF to deal with international crisis, etc., before the crash happened. The very same things he was calling for a year later. Very same things at the G20 meeting. You think nothing's planned in advance? He even talks here about food shortages. 2008, June. Now, we'll go to the callers now, and there's Jeff from Massachusetts. Are you there, Jeff? Yes, I'm right here. How's it going? I'm, it's going not bad, apart from all the rain we're getting after the spray. Well, that's it. Well, but you know what's funny is? All this environmental stuff is nothing but naked communism. Yes, because, you're right. Because in Red China, they they... They tell the people you have to have one child. In communist Russia, most of the people don't have cars. Only the elite have cars. Most of the sheep will have to, have to, are forced to take buses. Yep. Number three, I, I, a long time ago, I, I worked in a bakery, and this person said to me, Jeff, I don't want to talk about religion or geopolitics. All I want to talk about is sports and pornography. Yep. And you see... And, and you see, it's like it's like the people have been turned into seals, and the government feeds them a fish. Yep. What happens when you take away the fish? What happens when, when when the dog doesn't get his food? The dog gets angry, and that's when you have riots, and the government can manipulate the riots. That's right. And to to make it so you you can't even get out of your town without having an ID card on you, and that's what they do in communist countries. So. Yep. So, but that's so, exactly that's exactly what the Club of Rome advocated. They, they liked the, the collectivist Soviet system. 
Yes. And that's what is the plan for the future on a world basis. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, that's, that's exactly what you're dealing with. Global communism, and they have been... Uh, in, the, I, I think of communism from China, Russia, and the capitalism in America as competing predators. The Scousins have said that. Yeah. And, 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 and the fact is, as a predator, we're about to get eaten... And we have been we have been infiltrated by communists from China and Russia, and, and and we are about to have our lunch eaten. And in fact, we created communism, but communi- but but the communism from Russia and China, we can't control it anymore. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, well, yeah, that's right. The thing is, too, the same boys that created the world communism are the same boys that run the money system anyway. It's far easier for them to deal with the heads of nations than to collect a debt independently from each individual. They get the governments to do it for them through taxes. It, it benefits the bankers. That's why the bankers funded communism in the first place. You know? Exactly. But, but before I get off the phone, the, 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 I, I believe in my heart of hearts that, that the communism from China and Russia is like a Frankenstein monster that cannot be controlled and eventually we're going to be taken over by Russia and China and we're going to be dictated by Russia and China and we're going to be vassals of Russia and China and there ain't anything we can do about it. Mm-hmm. I think it's even worse. I think they're going to decimate the planet um, and basically they've got it figured out, I'm sure, how many Chinese they want, how many Britons they want and so on, ideally. Right. And in fact, they'll even have it worked out already because they've got the human genome finished long ago. Right. They know who they want. They know whose children they want. Right. And I think though, that, that's how they're going to get away from that one. They're not worried about China or Russia invading anybody. They've got the future all mapped out, even their food supply in the, up, in the, up in the Norwegian waters. From Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you.